You're tuned in to The Show on the Road, a new podcast where I interview songwriters, band leaders, and musicians from around the world. My name is Zach Lupitan. I've been the frontman of the California Roots Orchestra Dust Bowl Revival for 10 years, and I've been touring in bands since I was 14, and I've always wanted to ask my favorite writers and music makers what really makes them tick. What makes them write the songs they write? This is my chance to find out. This week on the show, my conversation with the boundary-breaking bluegrassers from country. I met these guys nearly 10 years ago when they were based in the Bay Area, and let me tell you this, they are among the most fiercely intelligent, straight-up wacky, and genuinely warm-hearted people playing music on the road today. A few years ago, they made the leap to Nashville, and man, these guys tour everywhere and work their asses off. They could even be spotted picking their guitars and mandolins in the mountains of Tibet. Fronted by Melody Walker's soulful powerhouse vocals and fearless social consciousness, I initially was only going to talk to a few of them, but this time the whole band got cozy and gathered around the mic, so here they are, front country. It's a pretty swanky room. Should I not say the instruments? I think you should. It's okay. easier that way. Oh, hey. Over here we got Jacob Groupman on the lead guitar and the dobro. Woo! He plays it Spanish style, that's sideways, not the right way. And <laughs> <laughs> over here we got Adam Roskowitz on the mandolin and the banjo. That's, right. that's how you say that. Yeah, it is. And over here we got Jeremy Darrow, who plays the upright bass in this band. And uh, what are you playing these days? I play guitar, and I sing, and I write songs, and I um, play some percussion, too. When did you guys form, officially? We formed in about 2011. That's kind of a topic of dispute in the band. I think like people are like don't remember at all when we actually formed because it was very loose configuration at first. This is in San Francisco? Yeah, that was in the Mission District of San Francisco. Um, there happened to be some great bluegrass residencies that were happening. Um, we started out at the Atlas Cafe, um, and every month we would get together, and that's how this kind of started was uh, our fiddle player, Leaf. He... Uh, he had a, a gig booked with our original banjo player, Jordan Klein, and they decided that three hours of fiddle and banjo was ridiculous um, and a little much criminal, for... actually, yeah. in some countries. Yeah. It was a little much for anyone, and so he's like, well, maybe we should get an ensemble together. And so they really just made some phone calls to some of these people here in this room, and uh, I think I may have kind of been a singer who was like, you should just let me sing some songs or something <laughs> like this. And they said, okay, luckily. And um, yeah, I've just kind of been hanging on ever since. Were you guys all in, in bands before this in the Bay Area? Yeah. I know, Jacob, you were in a Afro-funk band called Albino. I sent you those videos for you to watch. <laughs> I was appalled. No, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I used to play... Um, I moved to the Bay Area in about 2005 and started playing bluegrass and just meeting some people, but then got picked up by this this Afrobeat band called Albino. Um, yes, we were mostly white people in the Afrobeat band called Albino. But um, I played in that band for a while, but still played in various bluegrass bands. Um, me and Roscoe had a group That's right. called Simpler Times. Yes. That actually, in many ways, was like the original kind of concept for what became from country. Was it a simpler time? It was back in back in uh, two thousand and uh, nine? nine. Yeah, it was so many times years were ago. So much simpler then. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we did. We played in a trio. I think we played two gigs. We played but two we gigs. We rehearsed like many for times. Months. Yeah, to it was, 
it was like hard. We wanted to play music that was difficult. Yeah, pretty much. We did. Uh, that's where the King Crimson cover started, mm-hmm. and uh, we did a Radiohead song that I sang, which nobody will ever hear. But there is a recording. You know, I forgot that you sang that. Yeah, we've got. We gotta dig that up. No, I think I think the world needs to. And you're from Virginia, right? I grew up in Richmond, Virginia. Yeah. What, what, Melody, where are you from? Uh, I'm the Bay Area native in this okay. band. Yeah, I'm from Martinez, California. If anyone knows where that is, some people might say that's not Bay Area. It's like creeping into the Central Val, but uh, <laughs> we're still Bay Area. <laughs> the old Central Val. <laughs> Do you think? I'm curious. And, and Roscoe, where are you from? I'm from. I I lived in Massachusetts until I was 12, and then I moved to Southern California, and lived there until I moved to the Bay Area. So I'm basically Californian. I'm trying, trying to embrace it, because... Whenever he talks about being from SoCal, I like to sing... <laughs> I mean, I'm curious, you know, obviously you're, you're expanding the boundaries of bluegrass with each album even more. Um, in, in many ways, you know, like the Punch Brothers are considered bluegrass, but they're far beyond what anyone would consider to be traditional bluegrass. But I'm always, you know, curious when people listen to roots music in general, there is this uh, maybe old-fashioned notion that it is grounded in Southern music and that the only way to really feel it almost and to be authentic is to have some sort of roots down there, even though some of the greatest musicians that we know and all these bands playing roots music are northerners or yankees you know <laughs> jacob do you feel like people from where you come from have a different feel than california people well it's funny like i didn't even grow up playing bluegrass but because i'm from virginia people think that i like assume that i did i mean is that a myth i guess is that totally made well up? It wasn't my experience, but, you know, some people from that area really do grow up as it's like much more part of their culture. I think there's people who grow up playing bluegrass in California, too. We know some of the greats like Molly Tuttle. So I think personally that that's a myth, having played like various kinds of like world musics and things and musics that are maybe outside of my own culture considered to be, you know, and as a West Coaster, maybe bluegrass is considered to be out of my culture by some people. I think that it's kind of... The, the people who are the most skilled at those musics and the most passionate about them um, and who are real kind of don't care. They want people to play music, you know? And they don't, they're not sticklers for that. And I think it's a lot of the posers who are kind of sticklers. I like that you said musics, like maths. Yeah. <laughs> uh, musics, that's totally legit. Yeah. Legit terminology. What's the most nervous that you guys have been huh. at a show? A good question. One of them has to do with Steve Martin, actually. Oh yeah, that's uh, it. That that's was, the one. That yeah, was horrible. That was really horrible. Um, we we played at the IBMA International Bluegrass Music Association conference, and we were playing at like a, an awards luncheon kind of thing, and they had a couple bands that were playing in between awards being presented, and uh, and yeah, and they said. Uh, oh, Steve Martin was getting an award at yeah. this, a special award, and so he was sitting in the front row. And all I just kept telling myself before I got said, just don't try to be funny. Don't try to be funny. Don't try to be funny. You're not going to be funny. Like, 
Yeah. yeah. Jacob had a bunch of jokes that he was trying out on me like <laughs> days before. <laughs> throughout. No, the, the, we all knew the, we couldn't <laughs> be funny. I want to dive into a little more of the uh, diversity of our creative minds in front country here. The first thing that pops into your heads, we're going to go around starting with Jacob. Don't even, don't even think about it. First thing that pops in your head when I say vivisection. Um, like surgery. Somebody being opened up. Yeah, like vasectomy. Definitely. <laughs> uh, splitting in two. This is going to sound strange. Illustration. Like a book that you read as a kid? As in like a medical diagram. Like, the, or, or a painting. There's a, a famous Dutch painting, maybe it's an English painting, of um, a of, 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 of vivisection happening in an operating theater. And there are, there's a doctor there cutting into a cadaver, and there's dozens of people kind of peering over. Like, it's the first time they've seen inside a human body. This great mystery is kind of exposed. What did you want to be when you were a child? <laughs> uh, not a doctor. Um, my dad was a microbiologist, and he was always um, always cutting open animals. And I always oh, shit. saw that. Uh, but no, I think the first job I wanted to be was a journalist. Is that for... Yeah, let's, see. Um, let's just go around. I want to be a writer. Yeah, I want to write books. No, novels? Writing. Yeah, novels, like, like yeah, fiction. Did you ever write any fiction? I made a lot, like several books when I was a kid, but uh, yeah, and but then eventually stopped. But I did write, like, constantly. Turns out they're hard. Turns out books are hard. It's way easier when you're 12. What's do you, the, do you what's, remember writing when you were a kid and, like, you try to write a book and you're like, oh, I've been writing for so long and I've got, like, three pages yeah. What did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, actually, a parapsychologist, which it turns out is totally not a real profession at all. <laughs> <laughs> but I was really obsessed with like horror movies, and I loved Poltergeist when I was a kid. Wait, para like parapsychologist? It's like people who have these uh, total BS machines, and they go into house and ghost hunt. You want to be a ghostbuster? I wanted to be a ghost hunter. So, I didn't want to hurt the ghosts. I just wanted to be like a ghost hunter. I thought it meant like you would analyze people as they were coming down from the sky in a parachute. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I really liked Legos when I was a child, and so for a long time I wanted to be an architect. That went away when I was dis- when I discovered the guitar. You gotta know a lot of math. Also. I know, it's reason five. That or I'm maths. Like. Yeah, mm-hmm. lots of maths. Alright, the next thing, first thing that comes to your mind, The girl next door. Um, I don't know. Some some girl in high school whose name I cannot remember is popping in my head right now. Oh, okay, now. so you have an image of somebody. Yeah. Okay. Uh, obviously porn. <laughs> That's amazing. When I was a kid... Um, <laughs> obviously. When I was a kid, I had, like, my, you know, best friend, quote-unquote, um, was this... A uh, little girl named Anna, I think, and that's who popped into my head. We're very yeah. different people, Roscoe. <laughs> hey, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the first thing that pops into my head is was the girl next door, and it was Katie Black, and we went to school together. Did you have a crush on Katie Black? I believe I did. Yeah, in my 
the third grade head. Yeah. That actually goes to my next question. <laughs> Who is your first crush? Oh, oh, my God. oh, oh did you? Okay, you go. Um, let's go with Katie Black. Yeah, I mean, that would be unfair if it yeah. wasn't her. <laughs> is that or Debbie Gibson? Ooh, Debbie, though. Oh, does that count? That does not count. Celebrities. Uh, Where are you from again? Uh, from Durham, North Carolina, but I spent a lot of time bouncing back and forth between there and suburban Philadelphia, where my mom lives now. Go Eagles. Go Eagles. Yeah. Um, my first crush was this girl named Kelly. Um, I used to, like, trade uh, doing chores at the stable uh, when I was a kid in exchange for riding lessons, and uh, she had a horse there and took lessons as well. And she was pretty cute. Horse girl. Um, uh, hard to say because I, I'm like a crusher. I used to be at least. Like I've had a lot of crushes in my life, like unrequited, like really tragic. Um, but I think my first like big one was like in elementary school. Um, my buddy Jamie Webb. And yeah, I still know the guy and he's awesome. He's always been awesome. And um, yeah. Did you ever write a song about Jamie Webb? <laughs> no, luckily. I didn't, but um, I think I did like send him like a mixtape in elementary school, like because I was obsessed with music as a kid. And I think I gave him a mixtape that included the song um, "You're My Best Friend" by Queen. <laughs> um, my first crush was a, a girl by the name of Morgan Salmon. I love how we're using last names. By the way, Morgan. Yeah, reach out, reach out. <laughs> Uh, we used to, um, her family lived even farther out into the country than mine did, um, and we carpooled to school together. And her dad, she was way smarter than me, and her dad, uh, on the way to school for like a few years, would just quiz us about things that she knew, <laughs> and I didn't, and would make me feel really dumb like every day on the way to school, but I still liked, liked Morgan a lot. I remember there was a girl, uh, I, I know her still, uh, she had a crush on me, and I didn't get it, uh, and she would write me Christmas cards with money in them. <laughs> and in retrospect, I was like, this girl is baller, man. Like, she'd be like, well, we're up in, we're in Idaho with my extended family, and I really miss you, and... Um, you know, I can't wait to see you back at school. We're like six, you know. <laughs> Here's five dollars. I was like, and my mom would be like, uh, Rebecca gave you five dollars again? <laughs> and it's really funny. Um, I one time tried to give Morgan a card with five dollars in it. <laughs> Maybe it's a thing. <laughs> and my mom, my mom was like, why are you doing that? Don't give her any money. <laughs> like, that's super weird. <laughs> and I was like, but... It's a nice present. But now maybe I'm she like needs the money. Now I'm wondering why I didn't think of that. Like maybe we could have been together, you know, me and Jamie. If, Jamie. Uh, if I would have just bribed him. Yeah. Do you, as a writer, think about a specific person when you're writing, or is it a combination sometimes of all these different loves throughout your life? There's definitely uh, some truth with a sort of a universal truth bent to it, to some of the songs. Um, most of the lovish songs on the new record are from my own personal experience. Um, recently made a big commitment and got married. Um, and that was kind of, a lot of those songs were written going into that experience and thinking about 
the idea of commitment and making stuff work. You know, if something breaks, we'll fix it on the road. And honestly, at the same time, becoming like a real full-time touring band. It's like all together in one metaphor, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, making stuff work, making your life work. Um, so yeah, but there's other things based on other people's experiences, um, stories that I'd heard from friends, and yeah. What I find interesting but also difficult, you know, uh, my now wife, you know, is the first person I send any song to. And she always is sort of like, huh, who's this about? She right? insecure about it? <laughs> no, but like she knows when it's not about her, oh. right? And I think it's one of those things where like we have to come to peace that unless you're like, you know, with your high school sweetheart, which most of us aren't, uh, that there's stages to your life. You know, there are five stages to her life before she even knew I existed, right? And I think something about growing older is about coming to peace with these other parts of your life that are now gone but are still in the, your mind. So uh, the next word I want everyone to think of. James going first. Trust. <clears throat> Issues. <laughs> Canvas. Canvas. This is like therapy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say hard. It's hard to do. Reliability. Uh, that's interesting. So you guys as, as band members have to trust each other for sure on stage, right? Um, is there ever a point where something is going wrong and you're not gelling and the chemistry is off, how do you fix it? <laughs> well, that never happens. Yeah. <laughs> We're that good. The circle's real. No, it's, it's really, it's a, it's a thing. It's a thing we all deal with, you know. Um, and it's a process. But uh, I, I try and make a, like, emotional connection with my bandmates, you know, and be real, have real, you know, uh, because you're in such a heightened state, you know, everything is amplified. And so my like, like, um, concern and anger at that moment is also amplified. I'm a crazy person, you know? So trying to be like, I'm, you know, just uh, honest with myself and normal and connect. That's a strange answer. Yeah, it can be a disaster. Like you said, like, yeah, I feel like especially like vulnerable and insecure on stage. And so if, if a bunch of stuff is like working against me all of a sudden, uh, I can have like a really hard time getting in the right headspace and not being distracted from the task at hand, which is ultimately like being real and connecting with the audience and like delivering a song as sort of with as much sincerity as I can, you know? And that's a hard thing to do when there's a lot of distractions. Um, so yeah, for me, I definitely go back to trying to connect visually with everyone else and like play, literally play together physically, you know, and try to connect and get on the same 
groove train or whatever it is that's going wrong. Yeah. Also, good vibes can head that stuff off, you know, before, like, like a genuine, you know, well-intentioned smile, like, to your bandmates. Like, and then you're like, yeah, we're doing this, you know? It just can change everything. sound, I can't hear anybody. The sound is so bad, but we're doing this, and we're going to get through it. Yeah, you know. I think you've got to you've got to really be in the moment and carry <clears throat> carry no baggage into that. You know, if like if Roscoe was driving the van rough and I'm like grumpy at him or something, and we go on stage, that, <laughs> that has to be gone. And you have to like every moment has to be approached with absolute empathy and giving everybody support and the benefit of the doubt and not not attaching anything else to it. I feel like people don't appreciate how much. Uh, sports and music are similar, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, like Michael Jordan was the best because if he had a bad day and a bad, you know, previous game, he went out there every night and was an assassin, you know, and he did it in front of 20,000 people With knowing that he was getting paid $30 million a year. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, obviously, it's a little bit... Uh, less money where we are, <laughs> but it's it's one of those things where you have to forget everything that just happened. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you're in a in a fight with the person you love. You you know barely paid your rent. Here we go. We're gonna bring joy to this audience. Yeah. How do you channel sort of the uh, full focus when you get on stage? Do you guys do something before you play that first note? <laughs> That's so funny. We did, we, well, we all did a, uh, a little... We don't. No. no, we don't. But we did last night. But we night did last night for some reason. <laughs> we did like a, a hand circle, you know, hands. We, yeah. Hand well, I think, I think we did last night because the previous night um, was challenging for us. Um, like yeah. the sound was kind of wacky. I don't know. It just wasn't the, the greatest show. And, you know, at a big festival, you want to do well. And so, like, I think we were all very determined no matter... And, like... Like, we didn't know what the sound was going to be like, so we were all, like, very determined to, to have a good show and all, like, just making sure that, you know, we are connecting as much as we could before the show, maybe a little more than normal, just because we were, like, really wanted to make sure it was going to be what was like, the, good for us. What was the sketchiest, worst show that you can think of that you guys have played in the last couple of years? I, I, have my, I have my personal one. Oh, yeah. Which one is yours? That's the one where I ate, we were in the UK, oh, right. and I oh, ate oh, a, uh, like, it was a budget bin pound sandwich. I think it was roast pork. And, like, mm. as soon as I was finished eating it, I knew that I, something was wrong. <laughs> like, there'd been a breach, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and then just a little queasy throughout the day. Um, so we get to um, the gig, do sound check. Everything's cool. It's outdoors. It's outdoors. On a canal. It's fine. It's lovely. I'm like, it was the last gig of the tour. Just happy to be there. I wasn't feeling that bad. Um, then we hung out for a bit, came back to start our set after the opener, and every uh, time we unmuted any of the instruments, raging feedback. <laughs> like, raging, uncontrolled feedback. And that is when... I knew that I was going to throw up. <laughs> but I couldn't because we were trying to solve this problem. So we ended and up... And he's the tech liaison, generally. With the... So we ended up... As yeah. mandolin players are. Do, is that a thing? Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> it's, yeah. No. Um, so uh, anyway, we ended up just nixing the uh, 
mixing all the sound and just did it acoustic. We stand in front of the audience. We spent like 20 minutes. Yeah. And it was like literally like, ladies and gentlemen, front uh, country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, and then, so we did it. We played two encores. Thanks a lot, guys. <laughs> and, 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 and I then, didn't know. And then I immediately went and threw up. Oh, but also, you made it through. Yeah, there it was, was only crazy. a porta potty, like a large porta potty, <laughs> because there was this weird outdoor like pop up thing. I had to throw up in a porta potty. That's my worst gig. That was pretty bad. Um, God, I'm trying to think. Um, oh, like Rocky Grass. This last well, you know, I was gonna talk about that. Um, going back to what we were just talking about about like vibes and being a team on stage, like. Um, I had a like one one of the most exciting festivals we played last summer was this festival in Colorado called Rocky Grass and and I was really excited about it. And my 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 dad and my sister were there. It was like big community. We were really happy to be there. We won that competition. That's kind of how we started the band, et cetera, et cetera. We get on stage and my like whole rig just had like full meltdown. Like it would work the day before at the gig, get on stage, nothing's working. What is your rig? It's just a you know, my um my pedal boards, my DIs and my pedals. My like fancy di, um, just like no, there was no signal. It was fine the next day. It was fine the next day. It's been fine since. For some reason, I got on stage and, fi- and we had 15 minutes to set up all of our stuff. It was just like full meltdown, and I was I just like you know it like ruined my show and ruined my day. Like I was so upset about it because like we got it. I had to use a house di and you know it didn't sound that good, but we played our set and it was fine. But I was just like so mad that. Um, like my show had been ruined by my stupid gear, and I was like complaining to to somebody about it. And I was uh, after the show, I was complaining to um, this guy named Tom Rosen, who's who's uh, a great musician from the Bay Area, and and also a hilarious dude, and a really and a really like insightful guy. And and he was just like, dude, shut up. <laughs> like it's not about you. It's about the audience. It's like, pretty deep. Yeah, and it actually like kind of had an impact because like at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Yeah, like there's always another show. Who cares? Like we perform at a pretty high level at our very worst, and it's like whatever. Yeah, and I thought that was that was that was helpful. How many shows do you guys average a year? Anything? Uh, about one thirty, one forty, last three years. The, How many uh, shows do you guys average? I'm uh, probably around the same. Mm-hmm. It was a 200 a few years ago. Jesus. Ah. <laughs> no. <laughs> Some of those are hometown, like, you know, yeah, totally. weird private gigs in L.A. But yeah, we're not even counting, like, road days, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's like just 130 concerts. shows. Yeah. A lot more travel days and things. Um, there was, I remember the, we were recording live for our record. Uh, no pressure. At, uh... Great American Music Hall. It was like the first time we really like packed the place. It was like super exciting. Same thing. Like everything was working in soundcheck, mm-hmm. right? I got up there, no sound from the guitar, and my string it like exploded, broke like within the first song. And I was like, are you fucking serious? Yeah, I feel like recording live is just like trying to jinx yourself. Like, it's I'm super so nerve-wracking. I'm so superstitious about it because it's like, it just feels you're, like you're asking, you're like tempting fate. Well, and yeah. yeah, it's stupid that I feel that way, but it's like when things could go wrong, they will. And that's why having like a Zen perspective about stuff is like so crucial because it's kind of a choice whether or not you let it ruin your show, you know, and whether or not you let it like derail the whole thing and be crappy. Like, so... You gotta like get in headspace, but for me, it helps me like if we're having a really hard show, 
to have somebody else commiserate with it at least a little bit and like some sense of humor about it you know just feel like this sounds crazy right cool let's just slay then you know what I mean <laughs> but if you feel like you're in your yeah. own head and you're like the only crazy one right. and you're in like a sound vortex of your own where it just sounds horrible and you can't do anything and you feel like everyone else just is like having a great show then it's really hard yeah do you have a favorite festival that you guys have done ever yeah, all uh, of them. All of them. Please yeah. hire us. Yes, all, every, <laughs> especially the one that you run. Uh, whoever's <laughs> listening. Um, no, um, my my favorites of this last year um, are Red Wing, which is in near Harrisonburg, Virginia. That's mm-hmm. a great time. That's one you mm-hmm. have to earn. It's put on by the the Steel Wheels, um, and uh, what you know, obviously Telluride. Um, yeah, Rocky Grass. Even Rocky though grass. I had a horrible time. That's why you um, had such a horrible time, because you wanted it to be the I wanted place to be so earth. amazing. And it was, like, except for that one hour when we were on stage, it was like an amazing time. <laughs> oh, except for the part where we do the thing that we, <laughs> we love did. the most. Yeah. <laughs> it was funny, uh, on Facebook, my uh, mother-in-law, who's a big fan of the band, she's in Northern Virginia, <laughs> she just like posted to all her friends, like, you're going to love coming down to Red Wing, you know, Dust Bowl's played it, and like they're playing again, and it's gonna be great. And I was like, "We're not, we're not playing it." This year. <laughs> <laughs> like all our friends were like, "Can't wait, gonna be there." And I was yeah. like, "Guys, guys, guys, no, no, no." I mean, go. It's an amazing right, festival. Yeah, right. We're not like I think they assume that like once you're in a festival, you play oh, every yeah, year, every single year, yeah. forever. That should be how it is. Actually, yeah. can you tell someone? Yeah. <laughs> it's like Amy Lou Harris at Hardly Strictly Bluegrass. Right. She's played like what, like twenty nine straight years or something. There are artists for sure. Like I feel like every festival has their favorite. Like Tell Your Ride, like Sam Bush has played every single one from the beginning of time. Forty five of them. Sam Bush plays everything. Yeah. yeah. Him and Billy Strings are like, if they're not there, is it a festival? <laughs> Nobody's <laughs> really sure. <laughs> Going back to that horrible sandwich you had in England. Yeah. Oh great. Yeah, let's go back to that. Um, if you could only eat one meal on the last day of your life, what would it be? Oh. Um, is this like the first thing that pops into my head? Or, <laughs> because I would, I need to think about this and like design something that great. Uh, if you could only but what popped into my head was uh, like like stuffing with gravy. Mm. Oh, good. So, just by itself. Yeah, that's oh, just like what. Who's stuffing? Mine. Oh, yeah. But I mean, it's, it's bold. Yeah. Well. I'm going to go with soup dumplings. <laughs> the ones we I'm had today? I'm literally still fantasizing about them in my mouth right now. Din Tai Fun, what's like, the thing? Din Tai Fun, oh my God. <laughs> 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 okay, it's a food, it goes in your mouth. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> you just it's just the way that... <laughs> I actually hashtagged put it in my mouth yesterday yeah. and then like slowly deleted it. Yeah. I was like, oh. There's just no. something there's something about like the sort of silky, salty explosion in your mouth. Hot liquid. Okay. It's just so good. Anyway, no, literally though, those are the best soup dumplings and they're I was reminded of like, why don't I eat this every day of my life for the rest of my life? Mm, chicken fingers with honey mustard. Yeah. <laughs> from You're from so where? Basic. Um, like Safeway. Solid. Wow. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. Like the world is ending. Yeah. That's, yeah, I know. Like in the microwave. Yeah, you can microwave if you, you can microwave if you want. They usually come hot. <laughs> Definitely uh, spaghetti with this bolognese sauce that I make at home. It takes all day. 
super labor intensive, but it's completely worth it. So I'd want I'd want that day making the sauce, and then I'd want to eat the sauce. We should have a bolognese off. That's my oh, that's my yes. go to my go to. I would make huge portions of it for my grandmother, and then she would freeze it in individual Tupperwares, like 14 of them. And then every time she would eat them over the year, she would call me up and be like, I'm rooting it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's adorable. Let's keep going, because this also goes to the next question. How do you think the world is going to end? Climate change. Like a slow, a slow end. Mm, I don't know because the longer you f with the ecosystem, like the more unstable stuff things become. I'm no scientist, but like you know, at at some point we'll reach a uh, there'll be a cataclysmic event that we won't be able to recover from, but we're really helping it come closer by not giving a shit about the environment. If it's not climate change, which I wholly agree with Roscoe on that, I think it will be um, a disease. What I hope it is, personally, is a zombie apocalypse, because I'm fully prepared for that eventuality. He doesn't have guns, though, guys. Don't freak out. You don't need guns. Uh, I think I think it's probably going to be a war, but I think it's going to be... It's going to be connected to climate change. I think we we have we're creating all of these problems, and they are they they all intersect. And so we're you know drinking water is going to become scarce. This is going to lead to conflict. There's going to be wars all over the place. We have this nut job in the White House right now. So maybe we don't even get that far. But I think all all of these things that are are doing are going to coalesce into an enormous conflict that. It collapses everything, lights out. He has an intersectional apocalypse. Yes. Where do you guys see yourselves in 10 years? Hopefully playing very large venues and festivals, touring less in a bus. <laughs> you have a van right now, right? Yes, we do. What's her name? The Jambulance. Ooh. Also, um, Beverly, Dr. Beverly Crusher. Who drives mostly? I mean, it's pretty equal. Yep, we all drive. We all uh, get crap for driving. It's great. <laughs> I'm the best driver. <laughs> Except for that time that we spun out on an on-ramp in Portland like yeah. two days ago. Except for that time. Uh, yeah, Portland was like snowpocalypse two days ago. It was horrible. And um, I think there was nothing we could do from having our heavy back end of our van full of gear want to go in front. Of I would, I'll fully admit to taking that ramp a little too fast for what was going on there, but we did spin out. You did say, we're going to hit. Uh, we were. It's good for people to know that we're going to hit but the guardrail. It was 50-50 on whether we were going to actually get out of that situation, and you totally got us out of that situation. There was pushing. If you want to know what I was going through my head, myself, but as I said we're going to hit, yeah. was the front of the van smashed. Uh, I was like, yeah. this is going to happen right now. We're going to smash this van up. Uh, but it didn't. There was just good. a tiny little dent. There is kind of this sacrifice that people make for being on the road this much, right? Where it's like you're putting the probabilities in disaster's favor sometimes, Uh right? I think about it more and more. Every day. And yet, it's sort of, there is an element of, uh, it's like gambling. You're like, but I'm I'm gonna take this bet. Yeah. Because it's, 
it is worth it, right? Right? Right. Maybe? It, yeah, yeah, right? Uh, is it? Yeah. I don't know, man. This, this lifestyle is, like, I think, unlike most others. It's weird. Like, when I think about where I was a week ago all the time, like, it freaks me out. You don't even remember sometimes. Yeah, I don't remember it. You kind of have to block it out a little bit and just, I mean, in some ways, it's helping you, like, live in the moment more. And when you're on stage, you're hopefully living in the moment. So maybe that just, like, preserves us in time and we never grow old uh, as long as we can keep from getting in a car crash or um, stuff like that. Then we'll be good, even though there's a really high likelihood that we're, we'll get in a car Did crash. Did you guys have to quit day jobs to do this full time? I've never really had a day job. Really? Except never worked a day in his life. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not true. I mean, I, I had one when I first moved out to the Bay Area, but, um, yeah, after that nine months of hell, I haven't really... I mean, I worked at a music store, but that was, like, kind of whenever I wasn't on the road. Did but I've, ne- I've never held down a real straight job. But it takes a certain type of person to live this life, right? I mean, it's like we are choosing this, right? Mm-hmm. We're having a lot of fun doing it, but also uh, sacrificing certain years of our lives, um, you know, not settling down in any sort of normal sense. Mm-hmm. And I always find that a lot of touring musicians like us have this subtle envy of people who have a stable life, and the stable life people have the envy of us, right? Yeah. Totally. And it's like this cycle of envy. Right, but I feel like the stable life people don't really know what we're doing, you know? Yeah, yeah we know a lot about what they're doing, and it seems nice. But like... But is it? I don't know. I think there's a lot of bored people. Yeah, I don't... For sure. I don't... That's why they have kids. I don't. <laughs> I, I decided a long time ago that I always I wanted to be like in full control of what I do in my life, and that's like led me here because I'm control I'm controlling this band now. <laughs> you know? But it's but you know, mine. but just like not have just being just not having a boss and just and that's a lot of sacrifice. But I think it's worth it. I spent um, <clears throat> I spent one year right before I moved to Nashville as a school teacher. I'd gotten out of college and I was a working musician. For, uh, for a number of years, and then I got my teaching certification, and I thought, I'm going to be a school teacher. I did this for a year, and almost from day one, like first or second week, I started thinking, because I, I wasn't doing gigs, because I was preparing classroom stuff and had to get up super early, and I, it was always in the back of my mind, like, I should be playing, I should be playing. This is not, this isn't me, and I love teaching, but being in that, being in that daily cycle really wasn't for me and as soon as I made the move to Nashville and got on the road full-time it was like oh this is this is it yeah I uh, had a pretty large teaching studio in uh, in the Bay Area and uh, like how many square feet <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, dad jokes um, yeah I taught um, I had like 30 students at one point I was teaching Mando a week. nope guitar like mm. rock guitar you know the whole thing um and so i did give that up well we were still living in the bay but um we were touring more and i couldn't do both um i remember talking to my boss um and i was like um you know it's just like part of being a musician you kind of you teach a little and you do some gigs and blah blah blah. and she's like no you have to choose She's <laughs> not wrong in a way. Right? No, she's not because I wasn't being the best teacher that I could be because I wasn't fully committed to it. And uh, you know, so uh, 
Yeah, so I did choose. And she was kind of like, dang it. That's not the outcome. But. We like had to teach in the Bay Area. Because you can make a pretty penny, you know, at Bay Area prices. I'm sure it's that way in New York, too. Teaching people's kids, teaching adults. Um, and, yeah, I think we just became kind of flakier and flakier teachers as we were on the road all the time and having to reschedule stuff and only yeah. schedule lessons when we're off the road. And that hustle and that switch back and forth was such a grind. And we realized that, like, you know, it's half the cost of living in Nashville. We can just move to Nashville and we can just do this and have enough money to, like, survive and just spend time creating when we're off the road. When did you officially move? Um, it was last fall a year and like a few months ago yeah we kind of uh went houseless over the whole summer festival season before that so we we made our record other love songs in 16 in the spring of 16 we're literally packing out of our houses while making that record <laughs> it's i don't recommend this Ridiculous. anyway it was just what had to happen and uh and then yeah we we put a bunch of stuff in the van and did summer festivals and kind of crashed in Nashville and different places that we were on the road. Uh, <laughs> luckily, Jeremy has lived Jeremy's in Nashville house. for a while. Jeremy's lived there for 10 years, and, and uh, he has a little guest room, and that was very crush. Um, and so, yeah, we, we kind of were houseless for about six months and then found places through friends, good deals, and yeah. I mean, it is there is a sacrifice financially, physically, emotionally to sort of travel and do this stuff um to stay sane you know you have to try to find routines that work for you right um and money wise it's always like you don't really know when it's going to come a lot of times the in the in the bigger sense Mm -hmm. my question is how big of a check would it have to be for you to play a Trump re-election rally. <laughs> no one would know except you. It's like a private Trump rally. What would that check be? How big? I would never do it. Yeah, no, sorry. I'm serious. Like, I'm doing all right at this point. I, I don't need that on my conscience. I would never do that. But <laughs> if, <laughs> if it wasn't a check, but it would guarantee that he would not win re-election. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Yeah, I, do that. Then I would do that. I, I like this plan. Yeah. Yeah, this mm-hmm. good. If you guys could be on the road on a super tour with three other bands, <gasps> dead or alive, <gasps> oh, oh. who would it be? Uh, Dust Bowl Revival, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> Uh, Lindsay Lou and the Flat Bellies. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just gonna go with like my girls here, basically. Um, Liz and Lindsay. Oh, jeez, Bruce Hornsby. Yeah, um, I love him. It'd be fun to play with Bruce Hornsby. Yeah, that would be sick. That'd be sick, Bill. I think, I think it'd be great to go out with the Steel Wheels, because they are the nicest guys. <laughs> they're so nice that when you first meet them, you think that it's a put-on. But they're really, they're really just super they're just sweet. Nice. They're just really nice. Yeah. So literally, like, no Rolling Stones, no, uh, no Beatles. You would never see them. Or the band. 
the band. Well, like, right, you, yeah. you would never see them, though, right? Like, you hear about people going out with big bands, going out with Bob Dylan and stuff, and, like, no. you don't see them the entire tour. You don't get it's to true. talk to them. And it's, like, maybe their assistant, and it's like, oh, no, you don't talk to Mr. Dylan on the tour. And, yeah. yeah. I want to hang with my buddies and make music. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. That sounds, like, more fun to me. That's when we moved to Nashville. It's, like, all our buddies live there, so it's kind of, like, well, some, most of them. When are you moving to Nashville? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we're going to finish one thing. What is this song that you're about to play us? It's called If Something Breaks. This is the uh, first track of the new record, yes? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Are we doing...
Thanks to Melody Walker, Adam Roskowitz, Jacob Grootman, and Jeremy Darrow of Front Country. Please head over to frontcountryband.com for tour dates, music, and more. And you can head over to thebluegrasssituation.com for past features on Front Country, including an exclusive live video performance of If Something Breaks. If you're on Facebook and Instagram, check out Front Country's Kitchen Covers series, where they cover rock and roll and pop songs in their own crazy way. It's really fun to watch. The show on the road is hosted by me, Zach Lupiton, and produced by the handsome Hawaiian Chris Jacobs with support from the Bluegrass Situation team. If you love the show on the road, please leave us a review or rating over at iTunes.com slash show on the road. Tell your friends and also be sure to check out BGS's ever-growing collection of podcasts up right now on the bluegrasssituation.com. The show on the road is a part of the BGS Podcast Network. This is Zach Lupiton. See you on the trail.